Lord, just this week in our little congregation, we have people who have experienced the pain of others choosing to believe the worst in them and the devastating effects that that can have. We have walked with those whose own mental health has reached crisis. We have prayed with those whose undiagnosed pain is debilitating and produces a great deal of anxiety. And we have mourned with those who have lost suddenly and deeply a loved one. And we confess that in all of this, it is easy to be overwhelmed. The unknowns and the fears and the losses and the chaos seem to pile up. And yet we are people who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, the one who walked through chaos, the one who meets us in death, the one who quiets storms that we can't control, the one who heals, and the one who sits and grieves with us when the healing doesn't come. And so in this place, as a people who are called by your name, we call on you and we ask that you would do the things that we can't do and even the things we don't know what to ask for. We ask for your peace just to know that we're not alone in this chaos. We ask for your healing, healing of souls and healing of bodies. We ask that you would remind us of the hope of resurrection life, that you are the God who is making all things new. And we ask that you would also move in us, this church, these people who are gathered, that we could love one another well, that we could be your hands and your hugs, that we could be your smiles and even your tears as we cry with one another. We pray, Lord, that all of us who have walked into this place with various longings and needs and expectations, joys and hurts and sorrows, that somehow you would meet us here and you would provide for what we need, even for what we don't know how to ask for. We pray this. We believe this to be what you want to give us because you have asked us to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. So this is indeed what we ask for and what we hope for. And together we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. And I have some friends who have Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, they would love to lend you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, you get to keep this as your very own. And so just raise your hand. If you need a Bible, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, the Gospel of John, chapter, chapter 6, starting with verse 51. Today is, um, today is what we call Vision Sunday. It's a day on the calendar that we set aside, and uh, we talk about the vision of our church together. And so, in peer, and so peering into the Gospel of John, hopefully not just our vision, but the vision of God for us, will be revealed. I'd like to invite you to stand as we open up the reading and we declare the reading of God's word for us this evening. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 51. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then verse 60, listen to this. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So John had seen it all. He saw the signs and the miracles. He saw his mentor, leader, uh, friend, caretaker die on the cross. He witnessed Jesus in his resurrected glory. He experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. He fed the poor and the hungry. He ministered to the broken. He was on the front end of the storytelling. He saw the movement that spread wider than he could have ever imagined or dreamed possible. And over the the latest part of his life, he watched his cohorts be murdered when they told a message of what they called good news. Now, you need to know that this book, John's Account, was written, it was written later than most of the other New Testament books that we have. He didn't write it in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s like Mark or Matthew or even Paul did. John waits to record the events uh, he's seen until the end of his life. He's got a lot to talk about and he's been thinking about a lot, so before he pens his gospel... He wants to make sure that he tells a story that is really the gospel, that is really good news. So in chapter 6 of his good news story, John reports that Jesus says some pretty goofy things. They are strange to say the least and offensive at most. He says words like this, I am the bread of life and you must eat this bread if you want to live. The bread that I present to the world so that it can eat and live is myself, this flesh and blood self. Strange. Um, It's sort of like a cryptic message. It just has to be, because to take this literally is just disgusting. (laughs) Eat my body to live? This statement is insanely offensive to the Jews because it violated their laws, and it was just weird and gross to the Romans. In fact, the Romans knew that Jesus of Nazareth had died on one of their crosses. His corpse was missing so that they believed that this group that followed him and said that Jesus was Lord was cannibalistic because they said they ate the body and drank the blood of their dead leader. It's pretty repulsive. Unless you take a step back like John did and reflect on everything that's going on and try to see the bigger picture. 
Now, John cases these words within an event that everyone was talking about. It was the feeding of the 5,000. You know this story. When it was nearly uh, time for the Feast of the Passover, which was this huge Jewish celebration where travelers would come from all over uh, to, to celebrate a particular event in their history, their deliverance from slavery, this massive crowd followed Jesus because they heard that he could heal the sick. So they show up to listen to him teach and to see if he'll pull off any of his tricks, any of his miracles. But shockingly, everyone forgets their lunch except for one little boy. And that's when Jesus makes his move. But you need to know he doesn't make his move to impress everyone. He wasn't trying to be the first century P.T. Barnum. He takes the bread and the fish that this little boy offers to him and all 5,000, and that sh- that should, you should pay attention to that, all 5,000. 5,000 is a code for everyone. It's not just everyone. It's, it's a number that's bigger than you can imagine, more than you can count. All 5,000 ate until they were full. In fact, they ate so much, and there was so much left over that there were these 12 large baskets left over. Now, this is what Caroline Lewis calls sacramental imagination. When I was about five years old, I remember going with my dad down the street to our church to work on a Saturday for, for one of those church Saturday work days. It's one of those days when all the church people gather on a Saturday to clean up the building and throw away all the junk that all the people bring to the church because they want to write off their stuff on their taxes All that stuff that the church collects, everybody throws it out on the Saturday. And I remember sitting in the nursery, playing in the children's ministry area, watching the youth pastor as he was in there painting this mural of Jesus on the wall where Jesus was feeding the 5,000. And I can remember this like it was yesterday. I was about five years old, and I was sitting on on a small plastic tricycle watching his gigantic Adam's apple bounce up and down as he painted and told me this story. And I remember him saying, Christopher, do you know how many were there that day? I said, no. And he said, there were over 5,000. And Jesus fed them all, and there was plenty left over. And I can remember sitting on that little trike and saying, wow. That is sacramental imagination. It's the wow that comes when we're captured by something that is better than we could imagine in our best imagination. Sacramental imagination is the wow that I have when I think about the 8th Street Church. In October of 2014, I was thinking about starting a new church in Oklahoma City, but I hadn't really talked to anybody about it. I did, however, create a prospectus, which is like a business plan for new churches, that I wrote on, a, on the front page of this 25-page document. This is sort of what the front page looked like. And this is what I wrote. Imagine a story of hope. There is this story that's unfolding around us. It's a story where Creator God is the hero working to restore all that is broken in the world by bringing all of life into a reconciled relationship. 
It's a story of a group of people who begin to participate in this work that God is doing, recognizing his current activity, and they are filled with hope that he is about the work of completion within them. They are a people who are joyfully recognizing that they are a part of living out together this new story. Imagine a God and his people. The ancient text says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is now no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are, are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. And I said this, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul speaks to a reality a lively activity that God is doing in the present and he will make complete in the future. And through this good work of God, those who were once different from one another will now live in peace, hope, forgiveness, joy, justice, and mercy. And grace will be at the center of their living. And the reason they can do this is because he is God in flesh. God, the one who heard their cries and their brokenness and the suffering in their world, he did not just send someone. In Christ, he sent himself. Christ is the, is the redemption of all things, the hearts, the souls, the bodies, the lives, the relationships. And now through the church, Jesus is continuing to do the mission of telling a new story by proclaiming good news through his people and by introducing the world to its Savior one life at a time. Imagine, I wrote, a church participating in that work. God is writing the next chapter of his redemption story in Oklahoma City, I wrote. Here God is moving within the hearts of people that are committed not just, not just to attending church, but being the church. They're committed not only to gather as the church on Sunday, but to scatter as the church throughout the week. Imagine a church where Monday through Saturday is just as important as Sunday. Imagine a people engaged in a community, working together for the glory of God and the good of our city. Imagine a little group of ordinary people scattered throughout the city, living missionally in order to bring the light of the gospel into neighborhoods and relational networks, in urban and suburban neighborhoods, in big businesses, among artists and mechanics, among medical professionals and international students. Imagine a church that serves as a redeemed community where people find safety, inclusion, healing, transformation. Imagine, and I named it, Central Church. I had it in mind to call it Central Church because I wanted to be in the middle of something amazing. Nobody knew about this when I was writing this down. And yet... Here you are. Wow. You are not just a church that takes up space. You're a church that makes space. And in my best imagination, I could have never come up with what sits before me right this minute. The feeding of the 5,000, you know, is the only miracle that we have in, in every single one of our Gospels. But John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. In John, a sign is a picture of something that you cannot come up with in your best imagination. It's a sacramental imagination, and it's an invitation to live into a God vision. God's vision looks like this 
this great meal, apparently, where everybody has a seat at the table. Now, before the Bible was even written, the first century church would literally gather in homes and around dinner tables while they worshipped. And they saw that the meal that they had together was the expression of what it means to live the way of Jesus. The table or a meal together was the central focus of Jesus' story, they believed. They believed that it was an invitation to sit at a table with friends who said that Jesus is Lord. They believed that this was an invitation to sit at a table where a God vision was being lived out. The practice of coming to the Lord's table is older than the New Testament itself. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Paul all write about the Lord's final supper before his death. Certainly, it was a practice established by the church many years before John talked in his gospel. So John wrote in his gospel, so everyone, all the Christians throughout the region were familiar with the Lord's final supper. And when we gather at the Lord's table, we use liturgical words that come from Paul in 1 Corinthians. You, you hear me say it almost every week, on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. Now we intentionally, because of Mark, Matthew, because of Luke and Paul, we intentionally remember what happened at the end of Jesus' life. We think about his death, his body broken, his blood poured out. And we can assume that John regularly participated in this practice, and we know that he was there for the very first time the Lord offered his supper to his disciples. But you know what? While all of those talk about the Lord's Supper at the end of Jesus' life, John does not have a supper narrative in his gospel. There is no on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. There is nothing in John about a final supper on the night before he died. There's nothing about a meal at the end of Jesus' life. There's nothing about bread and wine right before Jesus' death. There is no record of Jesus' final meal before his death in John's gospel. Instead, John does something really unique. When John sits down to write his gospel, he doesn't talk about the meal that happened the night before Jesus died. Instead, with sacramental imagination, John places the Eucharistic themes in the middle, not at the end of his gospel. He takes Eucharistic themes and he puts it right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, not at the end. He He takes the Eucharistic themes and he puts it in the middle of Jesus' life, not right before his death. And he says by doing this, my friends, the event that is taking place, the feeding of the 5,000, points to something greater than you can imagine. And John takes Jesus' words and with the same sacramental themes that you find in the other Gospels and in Paul, he invites 5,000 people, which is a biblical way to say Everyone, everyone gets to eat the bread. Everyone gets to embrace. Everyone gets to take into our hearts, into our minds, into our bodies, the very way and pace and ministry and mission and vision and person who is Jesus. In John, Jesus does not say, I am the bread that you must remember in my death. He says, I am the bread that you must receive to have life. Life is something, according to John, that Jesus offers to us 
in the themes of the Eucharist. And what happens in these, in the, at the Eucharist is an outflow of what we experience. In other words, what happens at the Lord's table and what we, how we respond flows out of how we experience God's offering of life to others. It takes sacramental imagination to participate in the Lord's Supper. Church, I have watched you offer your life to one another this week by taking care of those who have experienced deep grief. You have, pay, you have prayed. You have been hospitable. You have provided meals. You have showed up. You have sent texts. You have loved those that were in grief all the way up to the point of death. And by grace in doing so, you have offered life. Just, wow. John seems to argue that the feeding of the 5,000 is Eucharistic. It's a vision. Live Eucharistically is what John is saying, and you will have life. It's like he's saying Jesus is the one who offers life in the middle of this very world that is a world of death. And within this context, when everyone is looking for a miracle, Jesus reveals his, by, his vision by saying, I am the bread of life, and anyone who comes to me will never die. Now, I've been thinking about this passage for a long time. I've been working over it, really thinking about it for the last couple months. All of this, every element that you see here, the little boy, the feeding of the 5,000, the Eucharistic implications, the 12 baskets left over, is all a sign that points to a greater reality. Jesus, the bread of life, was offering himself in abundance. It's another way to say that, uh, it's another way that, to say that we experience the best of life because space has been made intentionally for us at Jesus' table. I was listening to this book this week on the havoc that was the 2016 presidential campaign. And the author was talking about a man who was trying to exert his influence and he used the phrase, he bought a seat at the table. There is no having to buy a seat at Jesus' table. He makes him, he gives himself and he makes space to all all who want to participate in the wow. It takes a sacrament to live into something good. And he invites us to his table for free. He makes space. But the implication is that then we are too to make space for others. Because at his table, at his table, the bread of life is offered to everyone. Around here we say, we don't want to just take up space. We want to make space. John is a literary genius. Think about the elements that we have here included in the story. The boy gives up his lunch. He's not just taking up space, he's making space. The disciples arrange the people and have them sit down. They're not just taking up space, they're making space. Jesus prays a blessing, he's making space. There's enough for everyone, making space. Jesus offers himself in flesh in abundance. He's not just taking up space, he's making space. He's like a meal that gives and sustains life. It's prepared for those who bring a hearty appetite to his table. And he's not just taking space, he's making space for everyone. 
one. And the implication is, the invitation is, that we too will make space for anyone who wants to come to this table. This is a vision that he invites us into. We do not want to just take up space. We want to make space. You've noticed since we started this church that the table is the center of our worship. Everything we do here points to it, which means that we are actually captured by a sacramental imagination. By coming to this table, we are invited to make space for those that are hungry and thirsty for what they cannot provide himself. Uh, to ask, what does it mean for us? We're invited to ask, what does it mean for us? Not to just take up space, but to make space. That is a Eucharistic question. And as we participate at the table, we ask, what does it mean for us as a church, as friends, as neighbors, to make space for the other? This is a real question that we're asking because, frankly, our sanctuary is small. It's getting full. How do we think eucharistically about our space? How do we conceptualize the problem that we are going to grow out of this space with sacramental imagination, longing to make space for someone else? How, how, how do we think about making space? Well, your staff and your pastors are perfectly thinking about what this means. Is there a way in which we can share this little sanctuary, this little building, so that, so that everyone who wants to eat can be satisfied? Our neighborhood children's ministry rooms have been spilling. It, it is, the doors are bursting, and we are asking ourselves, what does it mean for us to be Eucharistic to our youngest worshipers? How do we continue to make space for them developmentally, emotionally, spiritually? Pastor Hope has been leading the board and the staff on this, helping us to listen to parents so that we might be good neighbors to our kids. I don't know if you know this, but over the next, uh, next three years, if we don't grow, we'll have 25 children pre-K to fifth grade, which is a lot for downstairs. We are hearing the struggles that many have in regards to how to engage their children here in this adult worship service. So our, our children's ministry team is creating a more developmentally appropriate worship service for these children that you will hear about soon. We're asking how we can make space in our homes. We have 22 people today who want to get into a parish group that don't have one, who want to enjoy the purposes of life together, who want to share life. In this surrounding neighborhood, we're asking how do we make, uh, how do we make space for those who deal with food insecurities or struggle with their addiction or a reality that we face this week are in danger. How do we make literal, this place literal sanctuary? How do we make space for those who don't speak English or who cannot find work? We are trying to figure this stuff out. And verse 60 reminds us, it will be hard. Because the people in this text said, this is a very hard concept to understand. How can we go about doing this? But you know what? Jesus does not offer an explanation on how the bread and fish will turn into 12 baskets left over or how eating and making space at his table will provide what we need. He only promises that it will. And when it does, wow. 
you know, the assumption is, is that a church is like any other organizational entity, complete with budgets and statistics and strategies. A church needs to move in the right direction if it's going to move forward in the future. But our vision as a community, a community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus, is not rooted in a strategy. It's, it's rooted in a way of being. It's rooted in an identity. It's rooted in a story. And it's a story that began before us, but we find ourselves captured by us. It's a story that we proclaim every single week. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is what Christians around the world call the gospel. The very elements of our worship and the structure of our worship, what we call a liturgy or a good story, point to the vision The things that you participate in, from talking to one another, to being greeted, to having your children cared for, to coming to this table, are transformative practices. In fact, for some, when they come, the experience is so powerful, either for the positive or the negative, that there is a visceral and physiological response. Cold sweats, joy, euphoria, chills, goosebumps, tingling nerves. The elements of our worship show us the direction to go. They are our vision. And all of these things point us to an opportunity. And the opportunity is an invitation where the Lord has made space at his table for you. This event, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, which is just a fancy way of saying thank you the table. And and what happens here is our vision. Everything that we believe happens in our relationship with God and with one another is demonstrated at the Lord's table, and our work and our ministry flows from what happens here. And here's the thing. When we say that Jesus invites us to the table, what we are saying is come. Step into the vision that God has for his children. I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table. And I want you to listen to the words uh, that Beth Skabinski gives us. Instead of reading the words of Paul, she wrote new liturgical words as if we were reading them out of the Gospel of John. So our communion servers are going to come and they're going to help prepare the meal for us. But I want you to listen to this. It says, after the miraculous feast on the mountainside, where a multitude were satisfied with five loaves and two fish, the disciples gathered 12 basketfuls of leftovers, which means, my friends, there is more than enough for everyone. And Jesus said to them, make sure you know that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. And those gathered around and heard this said, this teaching is difficult. So Jesus continued saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. When we come to this table, we trust God will satisfy our hunger, and and he will satisfy our thirst. Jesus shared a meal with a hungry crowd long ago, and he shares it with us today. Let us bring our hunger and our thirst to this table, the table of the one who called himself the living bread, the one who makes space for us. 
I want to let you know that if you are open to this work of grace in your life, if you long for a place at this table, you are welcome to come to this table. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but when you come, I want you to come out of the left side of your row, come down one of our aisles with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and be thankful. We also recognize that there are those in our congregation who have longed for healing and for prayer, and so Pastor Michaela and I will be made available on the, on the corners here for those who are interested in being anointed uh, for healing and for prayer. So we invite you to come to be anointed as well. For any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, I want you to wave your hand at Paul here, and he will come and he will serve you. But when you are ready, my friends, 